You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and you are listening to episode number 95, I believe. Is it 95 or 96? I think it's 95. Why do I always get this wrong? I need to have a big flip chart on the wall. This is episode number 95, and with me today is uh, my regular panelist, freelance writer, Rob Zachney. Good evening. Uh, it's just the two of us uh, tonight. We like to avoid doing duet shows for a number of reasons, mostly because you'll get tired of our voices. But it's just one of those weeks where people are busy and backups are busy, and it's uh, the holidays. Woohoo! Uh, but this week we do have a topic, an actual real topic. Imagine that. Not that our other topics aren't real. This is a, a game design uh, topic, something we haven't really done in a while, getting into mechanics. And it was prompted uh, by a form spring question that I got from a listener. Um, I get uh, quite a few form spring questions, and they're all very interesting. But this one, I thought, said, "Well, wow, this is actually such a good question. Why don't we just do a show on it?" And it was a question. Uh, let me just read it for you here. Uh, you've talked this is from Sam one one two three five. Uh, which I think is not his given name, but I can't be sure. You've talked a lot on Flash of Steel and Three Moves Ahead about tutorials and strategy games, but what makes a good end game? And I reply, you know, we we have talked about it in the way we've talked about the snowball effect and how that affects. That was many. That was a long time ago. We talked about the snowball effect in games. I'm sure that will come up tonight. But he's right. He really hasn't. We haven't really talked about what happens when a game comes to an end, and how the ending of a game. Uh, is really an important part of the design process. It's something that can keep you interested in keeping going, or it can make you want to turn off the game early uh, because you know what's coming and the like. Uh, so I thought this was an interesting question worth pursuing. Um, so Sam, thank you for that question. I hope this show doesn't suck. And I'm going to ask Rob, uh, what do we mean by endgame? What do you think? When someone asks, what is the endgame like in Open Universalis or Scourge of War or civilization when you're thinking about when someone asks you about what the end game is like at what point do we enter the end game oh man uh the point <coughs> the point we, we enter the end game um i i feel like the end game is the end game the end game is the point where you really you, you really have to make your final decisions about the way you're going to conclude the game, about the way you're going to secure victory. Uh, because at this point, you can't be... You're in the end game when there really isn't you know, time left or opportunity left for really rethinking the direction of your strategy in this game. Okay. And at this point, it's about managing and executing <laughs> the plan you've already made. Um, to me, like once, once you're thinking along in those terms, you are in the end game. Right. Once you've once you're on a path, once first the end game, the the end is in sight. The victory conditions are clear. The victory you are going for is clear, and you are setting up the process of concluding the game. At some point, you can you can pretty much see how it's going to unfold. At that point, um, there can be surprises, but generally it is. I agree with you. It's when your strategy is kind of locked in, and there's no uh, real escape from it, unless you know something crazy happens. I mean, it, I've had. I've had very, I've had victories change dramatically uh, from the plan in a few games uh, in the end game because I wasn't tracking something else. You know, you're going for a conquest win. Then all of a sudden, you have enough culture. Like, how the hell did that happen? Um, but uh, yeah, so I think your definition is a good one. Um, so when I think of end games, 
there's also, you know, yeah, sometimes games go through different phases in Endgame. Uh, there's a beginning and there's a middle and there's an end. So when I think of Endgames, I sent uh, when I sent the email around to this, the Endgame that, here's one that completely, yeah, an Endgame that's designed in that I think makes the game really good and that makes it the best of the series. Now, I know you and I disagree on this. Uh, I think Rome Total War is the best of the Total War games. You think it's Shogun, uh, and that's okay. We can reasonably disagree on that. But the reason I like Rome Total War best is because it has an end game written in, uh, where the end game where you get to a certain point playing as Rome, and it says, "Okay, now you have to fight a civil war and win that." Now you could say that's just the mid game, but I'd say it's actually an end game state where you've already dominated as Rome. Now the point is, can you dominate among your factions? And generally, it's a matter of getting your armies in the right place and doing it. But that's an end game, I think, that is written in. Um, and that's why I think it is the best of the Total War game, is because it does have an end game you are building towards. You know what the next step is going to be. You know what just happens when you get victory on one map, then it's victory on a pretty much another changing map. So, um, But I think end game, I think also the game that design in uh, a final stage, a final step. Um, well, I think I, I think the Rome one is a good enough example. It bears some discussion yeah. uh, before we move on from it. I, now, right. I think conceptually, um, I think conceptually, Rome probably is the strongest of the series because it does have this really cool idea for the final stage to basically you've been fighting the other Mediterranean civilizations this entire game, and now it's now you're going to be fighting basically a mirror image of your army. Right. Um, now, where it falls apart for me, of course, is you know where the AI doesn't. You're at a point where you're deploying the absolute best units. Um, you've got the elite versions of all the Roman legions and a lot of them, and they're really coming at you with basic legions. Right. Um, and so, just you know, mathematically, they're they're kind of doomed. Right. Uh, but the concept is really cool, and and one thing I really love about it is it's unpredictable. Right. You know that at some point. If you continue getting more popular, if you continue to leave, you know your fellow Roman um, leading houses in the dust, you know that at some point Rome is going to turn on you, and you're going to have to basically take it over. Um, but you're not—you're never quite sure when, right? And I think that that unpredictability is really key because you know one basically like that's what starts the end game. Um, but. You can't, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't be preparing for that moment the entire game. You just, you just have to accept that, you know, keep an eye on Rome, but continue working on expanding your holdings, you know, wherever in the Mediterranean you've got them. Especially since, you know, you're getting, you have to become popular. I mean, that's one of the mechanics of the game. Uh, the popularity is important because that gives you complete missions and you get rewards and you get all of these things that are very important and helpful in winning the game. So it is setting you up for the end game the entire time, even if you don't know when it's going to happen. There's no avoiding it. The game mechanics demand that you get there. And yeah, I think conceptually, it is just such a beautifully simple way of... Uh, capturing the, I mean, I want to say the inevitability, but the historical process, uh, abbreviating the historical process of the transition from Republic to Empire and the power of the generals. And uh, it's the, the end game of the game is, is, the, is the Republic's end game after a fashion. Uh, it's just the way things developed, the way things happened, and you are a part of it. And you're an inextricable, the design is the big, is the way history unfolded. And it's a beautiful, simple design. 
and it's all intentional and there's it, every part of it is mapped in uh, I think very nicely and that in and of itself is my favorite part of Rome um, it's a shame the other factions don't get in the end game like Carthage doesn't have an end game the Seleucids right. don't have an end game um, but it is Rome total war not Seleucids total war uh, so but the other factions just have the you know conquer your 50 territories and you win Right, sort of thing, which makes them kind of a little bit less fun because you're just doing the same thing over and over again, and there's not this great dramatic shift towards the end of the game saying, guess what, Civil War time, plus you have all your other enemies who still hate you. You have to fight Rome, and you still have to fight the Britons because they're still there. Um, and if Carthage isn't eliminated and you're fighting a Roman Civil War, they're still there. So there's this nice tension there uh, in the end game, and I think that is something that a lot of strategy games don't have. They don't have um, an end game as sort of a mini game type thing. If you can think of a mini game within a strategy game, I mean, in many ways that's what you're building towards. It's a game within a game because you still have the foreign conquest, but you also have to manipulate uh, and defeat your enemies at the end. Most strategy games don't really have that unless you think of um, Civilization V, where if you're going for a diplomatic victory, uh, you could think of the diplomatic victory at its best would be some sort of we're in the end point. How do we build towards it? How do we get it? But in fact, it just ends up being, you know, let's bribe all the people just before the vote. Right. Save up enough gold. Get a golden age, save up enough gold and bribe them right before the vote, which is a terrible, terrible way to have to end a game. Um, and I think Civ has, in general, has not had very good endgames. Oh, I'm so glad we're on the same page. I was worried we were going to have, have to, you know, brawl over this. Well, what's your problem with Civ's endgames in general? Well, there's there's actually several problems, and some of them are inevitable. Um, right. I think, you know, one thing is the past has a lot more appeal than the present and the near future. Um, and so by the time I reach the the final stages of a Civ game, um, usually I feel like the best days are behind me. You know, um, that's... So part of it's just I'm, I'm enjoying this... I'm enjoying this world less. Um, but, you know, the, the other part is I think with, with too many Civs, there's just a little... There's a little too much inevitability. Um, it, it, it Inevitability? Right, like I feel the I feel like the end game cuts in too early, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, we we talked several times where for me I I almost never have I never have the opportunity to rethink my strategy, you know, even once we hit the industrial era, you know, at that point, it, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty much well down the road toward one kind of victory, and I'm in the position of just making sure things don't get screwed up with it. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's an that's an important difference because you know if you too often in the end game of Civ, I feel more like I'm playing not to lose, right? Like I'm playing to secure what the rest of the game, you know, already established with you know me leading in a certain area, um, and the, I don't know, it feels confining is the way the final stages of Civ too often feel to me. 
Yeah, I mean, the Civ in general, one of the big problems with it, I mean, like you said, I'm, I'm with you off in the past, much more interesting than the present. You know, what to discover rifles, I kind of tune out. I mean, okay, great, I have rifles, and it's more fun to discover the wheel and ironworking than it is to discover supermarkets or whatever uh, in Civ 4. I mean, who, who cares? I can build a supermarket now. Big freaking deal. I have one just down the street. I don't have a, I don't have a blacksmith just down the street. Right. Blacksmiths are more exotic. Uh, but in one of the big problems with Civ is the in many ways, sometimes the micromanagement just starts to take over, especially in Civ Four and Civ Civ Three and Four. This is a big issue. Late game sprawl. The, yeah, the late game sprawl. There were just too many things, too many cities to manage. Doing the same thing in every one of them. Yeah. Um, finishing off the last little dregs of an empire to get the victory. I mean, it's one of those games where it's a snowball effect in some ways, where you know you are winning, <coughs> you know you are going to win. Uh, but there's but there's no mercy rule in civilization. There no one people aren't just going to throw their hands up and say okay you win. Nothing can stop you. That's not the way the game works. So it's trudging through the clicking one more turn and moving your units at one tile or two tiles and clicking turn and it just gets exhausting doing it over and over again. The constant prompts. Hey, you have to build a new coliseum and wherever. Um, Civ 5's interface makes it a little bit easier, a lot less fussy and annoying than Civ 4's did. But it really doesn't make the end game any more interesting because it does still have that empire management sprawl uh, problem. And I find it much harder to queue orders up in Civ 5 too for some reason. I don't know why that is. Um, <coughs> so, Well, I think Civ 5 is interesting because I, mm -hmm. I sort of feel with Civ 5, they, they continued the fight they've been waging for years against letting he who has the most cities take the lead right um which i which is a good idea to an extent although i won't I, i'll admit i kind of prefer being sort of a china type state where i'm just you know huge amounts of people and tremendous cities everywhere that feels really cool to me but i feel like they traded one sort of micromanagement for another you know in earlier games you just had too many damn cities now i've got fewer cities but oh they need to be babysat yeah um so there's there's that, but one thing I, I one thing one other problem I have with Civ end games, um, and I think this happens in a lot of games, is does the AI have a real chance of going for all the victory conditions that right. I'm going for? And the answer in Civ is unequivocally no. Um, you know, like a conquest victory, that's just not going to happen. I mean, right. I, I like I have never seen. I have never really seen an AI become so dominant that they're in serious danger of winning a domination victory. Just, it's unlikely. Spaceship victory, yes, that's that's totally in the cards. Culture victory, absolutely. Uh, diplomatic again. You know, I don't I don't see them going for it too often. Um, and one one thing I think that is is missing is what I, what I would like to happen. What what I'd like to see happen in Civ more is everyone sort of sniffs out each other's end game strategy, mm -hmm. and then you've got this sort of race to the finish where you are not only trying to secure your victory, but you're trying to screw up the other guys. Right. And I've had those games of Civ where I realized that my God, you know, uh, Mansa Moose is about to build a spaceship and win the game, and the only you know, and I might build that spaceship too, but it's not going to be done in time. So you know. Get the ICBMs ready, get the carriers out to see, because we are going in. And that's really cool. It's a dramatic finish, and that's when mm -hmm. the Civ Endgame really comes together. It just happens too rarely. 
Right. Um, and if you had, all, if the AI was had the same sort of paths open to it, um, I think I think you might have more opportunity to see like real clashes in the final stages. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, we Civ does have if the if the, if you play poorly or if the AI plays well, you can't have those moments in Civ where you are you know rushing uh, to build the spaceship first or rush to make sure somebody else doesn't get a domination victory in Civ Four, uh, especially after Beyond the Sword, where vassals counted towards a domination victory, and. Uh, that was when domination victory was just a number of population and territory size. So you had to actually conquer some stuff to stop that from happening, and you could watch it happen and see how badly things were going. And diplomatic victories and religious victories hardly ever after uh, Beyond this. Never saw a religious victory, I don't think, no. in all my civ efforts. But it, it it is an important part of keeping the uh, end game interesting is not just ha- having the... F- feeling that things can change that even though you're on the road to victory that there can be a shift that you still need to be taking action this whole idea that decisions have to be important the whole meaningful decision thing if there's still meaningful decisions in the end game um like a really good chess end game um people don't generally resign a chess game in the mid game they resign it in the end game when they see there are no options uh, they can see how things play out uh, there are still meaningful decisions to be made and an end game still has to have something of that and i feel like civ at its best can do that to you but you're right it just does way too rarely um, now but when i was thinking along civ's lines i got to thinking back to alpha centauri right and <laughs> Even though those are such similar games, yep. I don't have the same feelings about the end game in Alpha Centauri. I so enjoy, are, enjoy it much more. Really? Those aren't just rose-colored glasses? Well, well, they very much well could be. There's a lot of nostalgia tied up with um, Alpha or is there Centauri. Something, or is there something you're, you want to point to in Alpha Centauri? Well, I think one of the reasons that the end game really works in Alpha Centauri is... One, I think the the factions were sort of a little more creatively unbalanced, mm-hmm. um, so that I did see um, civs going for more diverse victory conditions because they were so well designed to do it. Right. Uh, the university, you know, if if the AI didn't get wiped out early, the university could just you know break open that research tree and just start racing toward the end. Right. Um, and that could really open, you know, a conquest victory to them if they went that route, or you know, the ascension. Um, you know, Sister Miriam's believers. You know, the way they could just slap cities down everywhere, and Chairman Young, the way they could just sort of zerg you, and you know, end up going for a domination victory or try to win it through the Planetary Council. I feel like there were there were more there was more competition for the victory conditions mm-hmm. in Alpha Centauri because you had the small number of factions each sort of genetically coded to go for a certain type of victory. Right. But, you know, that was the intention in Civilization V as well. The intention was for each nation to have its own personality and the only th- the things that it prefers to go for. Um, if not necessarily specific victory conditions, at least they would play in different ways. Um, I think one of the issues with Civ V is that many of the personalities first didn't come through all that clearly certainly not as clearly as they did in Alpha Centauri for a number of reasons. And they 
aren't all that tied, very few of them are really tied to victory conditions. You can look at a few of them and say, well, the Greeks, you know, they're designed to be a conquest or a diplomatic victory civ. You can just look at their bonuses and look at their early game units and say, yeah, well, that's what this civilization is. Um, you can look at India and know that it's designed to be a culture victory, though the AI doesn't play it like a culture victory. Right. Which is part of the problem. So, <laughs> But I think, you know, the, right there, I think... What- with, with Alpha Centauri, you know, Fraxis is in the happy position of not needing to include a bunch of civs. They, what they right. what Alpha Centauri is is, you know, it's seven, it's, it's, it's it's seven sci-fi archetypes. It's great. Yeah, exactly. It's I mean, Alpha Centauri is basically the last stage of an argument that seven characters started having aboard the ship on their way to this planet, and now right. we're settling at planet side. Um, and that and that comes through throughout the game and they all these civs can be really tuned for these victory conditions and it can be justified because well it's science fiction isn't it right. whereas i think in civ you're still a little bit rooted to the fact that ultimately you know these are all known quantities you don't you don't want to make them right. too other well, and also, I mean, people want to play as if people when people play. I want to play as the rich guy. They think, oh, I want to play as Morgan Industries. Yep. In Morgan Industries, say, oh, I'm Morgan Industries. So I'll play it industrially. But if people play England, or the people play France, or people play Rome, they want to play that nation the way they want to play that nation. Um, they they themselves might not have this the same ideas of what you know a Greek victory would look like. Why not do a Greek? religious victory or whatever um, in Civ Four. It's nothing wrong with that. But if you wouldn't design around that because it would rule out certain play styles. When you can make things up um, as you can with Morgan Industries and the Deirdre and her Happy Tree people or whatever they were called. Um, what was the other environmental faction? The Gaians. The, of course, the Gaians. Yeah. Uh, what a stupid name uh, for Alpha Centauri because that's not Gaia anymore. Uh, so you're not so you can actually you can tailor the end game towards different types of end games towards different types of personalities because the players don't bring that with them. Don't bring in their own agency as they would to an historical civilization and say I want to do a wonder victory or whatever with the Greeks. Well, I'm sorry, the Greeks aren't aren't built for that. You have to do something else. Right. Uh, so. But I think of other, I mean, the other great endgame I mentioned in the email, one that I keep going back to because it's just such a, we've gone back to many times on this show, and that is the imperialism. Um, I can't remember, Rob, if you played imperialism or not. No. Imperialism is, um, in a column, Bruce called it one of the great game designs based on delayed gratification. It's one of these awesome slow burn games where things start very, very slowly. You're just starting, you know, you're building livestock yards and you're building railroads and you're building lumber yards and just and building up small little trading relations with minor powers, slowly building them into your empire. And it's a very slow burn. But then all of a sudden, you get this cataclysmic global war. Alliances are formed. Uh, great powers side with each other. And you get this explosion of war once somebody realizes, once the AI realizes, uh, or you realize, that somebody is on the verge of victory. Somebody will have enough votes to win the congressional vote, to win the International Congress vote. Um that comes up every few years and you just can't let them win that or you lose or they won't let you win that or they lose. And the AI is very aggressive about that. If they see you're militarily weak, they will take advantage of that. So the end game can come pretty much any time your back is turned. 
and the end game is almost always the same. It is an explosive, all of a sudden, global war that can come out of either two great powers hitting it off or a great power poking into somebody else's colony. And it's a great end game because you know what you're building towards, but you're not quite sure when that moment is going to come. Um, I guess sort of like Rome Total War, only it's such a great shock when it happens because you're fighting all these small little wars with minor powers and then all of a sudden you have these huge navies showing up. And if you haven't been focusing on your navy, you get blockaded and your trade suffers. So you have to be building towards a global war you know is coming. It's like your Bismarck in 1870 knowing Germany's got to be ready for 1914. Uh, but you don't know if it's going to be 1914. Right. Uh, and it's really a great way to design an endgame, um, once again, having this whole vote system. And I think it works because the AI is aware of what the victory condition is. And it's so clear because there's only one victory condition. You have to win that Congress. You have to control enough territory and or enough colonies so people will vote for you in this Congress. You get one vote per state or colony you control, I think, something like that. Uh, so you can't just go rampage and conquer everybody, or you just have everybody declare war on you, so that's not going to happen. But because there's only the single victory condition, the AI can focus on getting towards that um, and preventing you from getting there. And I think it works so well because you do have this build up to a great climactic moment. It is this slow build, slow development, you're getting ready for it, and then it's just this explosion, this fury, and it can be over. The war can be over in just a matter of a few turns. If you take capitals, uh, the countries are knocked out um, entirely, so that's really not a problem. So they can the, – the wars themselves can be wrapped pretty quickly, or they can drag on, and you have to econ- get economically strangled and start blockades and all of this. But it always ends in this glorious explosion, like a big burst of fireworks. Um that is really puts you know um, the Bernstein and Spieth classic as one of the best strategy games I think ever made because it does have a nice slow cautious simple opening game and there are a few opening moves you can do that are pretty standard you would think just like in chess or diplomacy things that you you find a nearby minor power and you invade it and before it has any friends and get all the extra resources and you scout for gems and gold first uh, so you can get your income going. So there are some, you know, basic opening moves, but it's the end game that I really loved about it. And imperialism was never a game that I stopped before it ended. I mean, if I, if I was sucking, yeah, but if I, if I was winning a game of imperialism, I would always see it through to the end. If I was losing and I know I was going to lose, okay, I'd quit. I realized I could not catch up. But it's a game I always wanted to see if I could get the victory because no lead was safe enough uh, if all the great powers of the world turned against you, in which and they, they could. And they were canny enough to do that? They were can they, they, you would have nations bail on you and alliances. They would just not honor the alliance. Uh, the great powers would divide up. They would sign alliances with each other and not with you. Uh, you could have the great powers divided in two, uh, two large factions, as you would before uh, World War One. And it's it's that tension that tension and that explosion that you can see coming. It's a powder keg under pressure, uh, ready to snap. And then somebody shot in Sarajevo and the world goes to hell. Now, do you think, do you think that a, a good end game then, I mean, is something that 
when I hear you talk about imperialism, and I think mm-hmm. back to what we just said about Alpha Centauri, I think, well, these these are both games that sound like they are very structured in some ways. Um, they're they're not as open ended as many other grand strategy games. Right. This certainly isn't like your like uh, Europa Universalis, which doesn't have any victory condition at all if you think about it. Right. Which which is also why it doesn't really have an end game to speak of. But we'll get to that. Right. But I, I'm just thinking. I, I sometimes wonder are. Are grand strategy designers in particular too hesitant about sort of steering the game toward certain ends? Certain certain sorts of conclusions will happen more than others. Um, hmm. Are the, do they are they worried about making it seem too confining to players and that you don't feel like you're completely in control of your own destiny? Yeah, there's been this push towards you know more sandbox stuff and giving right. you more and more and more options uh, in grand strategy games. I mean, how many victory conditions? I mean, civilization. I think about it. At first, there was just conquest and space. That was all there was for Civ One and Civ Two. Then there was a culture victory, I think, in Civ Three. Right. And Civ Four introduced a diplomatic victory. Or that might have been in Civ Three as well. But it comes up in Alpha Centauri, so it's really. But important. it comes up in Alpha Centauri, so it predates Alpha Centauri. Had what the Alpha Centauri had the planetary science, council. Um, planet, yeah. You're the elected council. ruler of the planet. Yeah, planetary council, transcendence, and military victory. Yeah. The three, which are kind of the way uh, most of them have gone. Oh, and the uh, corner of the global energy market. Oh, corner of the global energy market, right? Which yeah. was always kind of boring. Yeah, I never did that. When I when I was Morgan, I was like Morgan Industries. The industries are for generating weapons. Um, <laughs> See, I, so I I don't know. Do you think that's? I mean, structure is a big part of it. Well, uh, I, because w- what I was getting to is, I think what what gets lost here is is the idea of the really well designed scenario. A great I'm, scenario can have a great end game because it's sort of been tuned to have a great end game. Whereas the more open-ended it is, the more the designer has to sort of say, well, I don't know what what the end of this game is going to look like. Like, I can I can make some assumptions about, you know, where these various factions will be, but I don't know how all the parts are going to come together. Mm-hmm. But if you can steer the player into, you know, certain channels... Right. Um, you know, if, if the scenario is really well designed, if you're a player... You don't feel confined. You feel like you are having the enjoyable experience of working on a really good, familiar problem to which there are many possible solutions. Right. And, I mean, again, I'm looking at War of the Ring. I've played, I played three games of the War of the Ring in the past, like, month or so. And every game has been drastically different. Um, even though, I mean, it's, you know, it's a map of Middle Earth. Everyone starts in the same place. Right. Um, but... <coughs> The goals don't change from game to game. Right, exactly. And yet these games take such incredibly different sh- shapes, um, you know, based on based on the, the strategies the two sides take. And then when, when you hit the end game, you know, what's, what's really interesting in that game is, and this is something else that seems to be a hallmark of a good end game that, you know, we've, we've already touched on tonight, is... The person who is at a disadvantage, you know, in the game when when the when the countdown really begins, they need to have some plan B, some viable plan B that's open to them, either a good way to play spoiler or a good way to do an end run around, you know, the um the trap the the leading player is preparing for them. 
Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I want to go because you don't want to have it because the, if you want the AI to play by similar rules, we, we should think the human player should have options open to it. Let's leave it at that. Yeah. Because you don't want to have it so if we're talking about single player games, like so many strategy games work very well single player, you don't want to have it so that the if the player, if we are winning the game, that the AI can pull some cheese move. That's very playing, true. Playing spoiler is fine. I mean, I don't mind the AI playing spoiler and finding ways to, you know, help make me lose. But I also don't want them to find some cheese way to win. Like, uh, Suleiman has just discovered alien artifacts. You yeah. lose the game. Uh, that sort of thing. So there are, have to be limits. But the human player, at least, should be given some agency, if not necessarily a way to win the game at the last minute, because you do want to reward uh, good play. You want to have an end game that feels deserved. Right. You want to have, the victory has to be earned. Um, it can't, but the player has to have something that keeps them involved and engaged. Um, so if it's close, they don't quit. If they're losing far, far behind, sure, they're generally not going to stay in it. Probably not even to the very end. But if it's a close game, you want to have them invested in seeing how it wraps up. Um, that's what an end game should do. Now, how we do that is the problem, I guess. Um, I, which is, I guess, what this show is about. I, mean, it's, I, I think structure is one way to do it. Though you're giving a, a lot of players really love the sandbox, or they say they love the sandbox. Um, I wonder if that is if the openness is of many. We should we should have a heavy. Well, we should have a show on that in general on the pits and perils of the sandbox just but. one thing one thing about the sandbox though mm-hmm. I, I think <laughs> i don't know how much how much players really do love it but I, i'll tell you the logic before before i started really seriously pa- playing strategy games mm-hmm. uh basically when you made me um <laughs> what the, the way i tended to approach approach games is i really liked the idea of just a big meaty game where something that, you know, oh, anything could happen. The world's your oyster. And what I tended to be resistant to was, you know, I, I mean, I, I feel guilty admitting this, but I was a total back-of-the-box, you know, shopper. I was like, oh, well, this has got, you know, 20 scenarios, but God, you know, that's not very many, is it? And if you think about it, you know, one scenario, like a good board game, kind of one scenario, you'll play it, you know, for years and right. and ne- and never miss, never feel the lack. But... Certainly, when it was put in the context of video game, the problem is there's always option B, which is anything could happen. Total War's over there with its beautiful graphics, but also like you know, sixteen factions and you know, a hundred some units, and you've got you know, hundreds of years in which to play, and you think, well, that sounds like more game. And I, you know, I that's that I think that I think is the appeal. I'm not sure. I'm not sure players so much prefer the sandbox, but I know that it is very seductive when it's there in front of you. Well, I mean, one of the great things about strategy games and why end games I think are so hard to design is because, especially you think of historical games, which are my preference, um, or even some science fiction games. If you look at games like Galsiv Two and Master of Orion, is that you can't the promise that you can build the world or the universe how you want to do it, um, and if there wasn't a turn counter at the end, um, people would the idea is oh I want to keep playing it and see what happens. Right. Um, if you read the Paradox forums, um, not that I recommend anyone read the Paradox forums. <laughs> Stay away. Uh, no, they're fine for some things. 
Uh, but one th- constant thing that comes up is, is there any way to play past the end date? Is there a mod I can do so I can yeah, play? Yeah, at this point, Victoria 2, there. Yeah, and it's like, so can I play you know, EU Rome earlier or later? They just want to have more of it. Uh, more time to win, I guess. Uh, more time to conquer everybody. Um, because, you know, Civ has that. Are you why not just have one more turn? Uh, you do your victory, and you can just keep playing. Uh, because the point is just to keep playing. But see, the, and that to me and is the, always and that, weird. That, get, that gets in the way of you know. I mean, for Civ, I mean, it's just, it's a victory, and what you do after this doesn't count. Um, so they, there is actually an end game. But for you know the paradox games, I mean, there there isn't. We're going to talk about those. There there isn't an end game because there isn't any victory condition. So you can feel this urge of players why they want to keep playing is because the game's not over. Because the game never tells you it's over until the clock runs down. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at that point, it's just like, yep, game's over. Here's your rank. Thanks for playing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we, we, might as well, we might as well get into that. Because I, I said okay. that EU3 doesn't have an end game, and I, I, I stand by that. Yeah. Um, but for for me, here's here's the kiss of death for EU3. As much as I love it, as far as endgame. Now, I haven't played Divine Wind, so maybe it got fixed, but somehow I doubt it. Um, but, okay, so the span with all its expansions, the span of EU3 is what, 400 years? 400, uh, 400 and change? 400, 400 and change, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what, what kills EU3 is the fact that that game works brilliantly for about... 150 years, 200 years. Beyond that, you know, I've said this before, it cannot stand up to the steady accretion of your decisions, of the coherence you give your empire. Um, And eventually, it just sort of like the game yields. That it just, it runs out of ways to challenge you because you've you've laid such strong foundation over the first half of the game (coughs) that really... There's there's nothing left that will really force you to adapt or shift gears. You, you'll be able to handle whatever the game throws at you. And the the other the other factions the the other countries um, really can't keep pace. And so for that for that 150 year period, it's all fantastic. It's all you know international relations and fighting for alliances and you know winning favor and trying to secure a dynastic future. And then. At some point, it just it runs out of steam and it becomes a really extended victory lap. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go quite that far. I think that uh, EU still has, especially if you play um, um, a power with some meat to them. Um, there are the uh, the national using the national decisions, and if you have a colonial empire, there are always new challenges you can create for yourself. Um, I'll have more to say about Divine Wind uh, later in another platform. Uh, but at this point, I can say Divine Wind really doesn't do anything to f- address those concerns. Okay. Um, uh, my issues with Europe and Rosales is generally I don't play much past 1700. Okay. So let's say we have like 300 years, I guess. Um, and generally, either because uh, I have become so powerful, it's just not interesting, or my empire has gotten backed into some sort of uh, corner or spiral where uh, revolt. Re- I get 
keep getting sucked into stupid wars. Everyone's declaring war. My, my revolt risk won't go down. And I'm just constantly doing what you're always doing, Victoria 2, from day one, beating down piddly annoying revolts, um, which is kind of frustrating and annoying. Uh, but EU doesn't build up to a conclusion. Yeah. I mean, it has this... The starting date can be virtually random. It really doesn't matter what the starting date is, which is fine, so that you pick it anyway. Uh, but the concluding date can be whenever you want. They say it ends with Napoleon. It's built this great revolutionary era, which feels nothing like a revolutionary era at all. It doesn't no. really feel like the Enlightenment. So it's not building up to some climax of Enlightenment rule and mass marches of men, because, you know, you manage your empire, right? You can have mass marches of national levies in 1600. So you're not building towards any great thing. What you are is you're building the end game of the paradox titles and EU in particular is a grand monument to yourself. Yeah. And building as large an empire as you can. Um, they've have they've added a, 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 a achievements have been added in Divine Wind. So at least you can work towards those. Um, but that's really not a replacement for an end game for. Uh, Having a playing a game with a victory option in mind, um, and I guess I'm I'm a big fan of sandbox games. I play most of my city builders in sandbox, uh, not with goals and missions. But you, I think there is a certain discipline imposed on design by having a fixed point. We're saying you're a winner, you're a loser. Um, it's not the Paradox design, and that's fine. I love the Paradox games. EU3's uh, a game that is... If I didn't have to play so much Elemental uh, tonight and tomorrow, um, I'd probably be back playing Divine Wind all night, like I have been for many nights, uh, trying to understand why they nerfed China so badly. It's, it's a great, great game. But I wonder if it wouldn't have more coherence if it wouldn't be even easier for people to play and understand if there wasn't actually some discipline of a victory condition in mind. I had uh, our great editor and friend, Bill Abner, has started playing uh, EU3 uh, after years of hearing about it. And he said to me in a chat, so what do I do? And I said, well, whatever you want. And that was not helpful at well, all. Well, you recall, when I started playing it, yep. I came to you with the exact same objections. I was like, That's right. I was like, Troy, I don't get this. I don't get this at all. What the hell's going on here? Yeah. This is terrible. Um, <laughs> and I mean, and of course it, it then, I mean, I did such a 180 on it. It's one of my, you know, all time favorite strategy games, um, right. in spite of the lack of an end game. And that's, you know, what, what I can't, I, I, I have trouble imagining EU, what I love about EU three coexisting with a great end game. Yes. Like, I, I just, I, I, I don't really see how that would work. Like, maybe no. about uh, the only thing I can imagine is maybe better benchmarks for your empire that you could, you know, try to meet. Well, yeah, but, but better than just prestige. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, that's true. I mean, that's true. I mean, it, it would be a very different game. Uh, it would not be the EU we know and love and that I'm addicted to if it had an end game. Uh, but I do think it would, it might actually be, if not, I'm not saying a a better game or a more interesting game, but it would be more of a game uh, instead of just a sandbox uh, if there's actually some endpoint to work towards. Um, I think a a little bit of discipline might even be good for 
I, I love the Paradox guys, and of course I'll be seeing them next month in New York. But, you know, a little bit of discipline might help them get around some of these design issues they sometimes have, where they throw in a lot of features, and they're not always clear what the features are for, uh, how the player is supposed to use them, or how they're connected. I think with an end game, uh, you get that sort of discipline. Yeah. But I'm just an armchair designer. What do I know? I've never built a game in my life. How about you, Rob? Um, no, I never built a game. No, actually, I totally did try to build a game once. Yeah. Not that it matters. We're, we're, we're critics. We're allowed to criticize. Yeah, it was in high school. It didn't It didn't go well. I was, I was trying to design a minis game. It was a disaster. I should have just, oh. you know. Oh, please, please tell me you still have some of it. No, no. It's all gone. That's, that's a lie. No, it's, it is seriously all gone. You're bringing it to RapidCon, right? As is the memory. <laughs> like, I did the whole Men in Black thing to myself after, like, my friend and I, like, tried to playtest it, and it was like, oh my god, this is freaking terrible. And then we never spoke of it again. Until now. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but yeah, so so there's there's one other, there's one other sort of end game that I want to bring up. This is sort of the campaign end game. Okay, yep. Um... In like in like story based campaigns and RTSs or yeah it's a pet peeve yep. and and here's the here's what here's what I cannot stand it's when like I understand the the desire for like a great finale to a game but what I can't stand is when that just turns into massive difficulty spikes. Um, and I think, you know, one of the worst defenders, at least I haven't played the series in years, but I remember, you know, the early C&C games were the absolute worst defenders in this that I've ever encountered. Um, because, you know, the story would be, you know, you are, you are kicking Kane's ass. You are, you are, uh, pushing Stalin back to Moscow and, you know, their, their armies are in retreat. And then you go into missions where, it's almost like whoever designed the scenario is just out to spite you. You know, it's like, ha, you've got no resources, no soldiers, and this army that's defeated and rapidly folding up, um, somehow they've got this massive super base that you got to chew through. Right. And this, this is, you know, there are so many strategy games that, you know, tell a story that end up sort of falling into this trap where it's like, well... Um, we we have to make you, you you really have to earn that final cinematic. Yeah. Um. So you know, to hell with what the narrative says. These last these these last missions are going to be impossible. You are going to you 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 and Quickload are going to become best friends. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the, there are so many storytelling problems uh, with RTS uh, campaigns. Even to consider them end games is kind of problematic because yeah. they're really ends of stories that should never have been written to That's begin with. That's very true. Uh, but RTSs themselves have end games. Um, where that's one thing I love about the RTS uh, genre. And people say, "Well, they're over so fast." Well, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
you will you will see the end game. You'll and the end game will be different. And most of the time, usually ends with you or Tom killing me, one well, way or the other. But but the and there but there is an end game, and the end game is generally ideally it is a it is either two large armies. If if it's if it's not a, if it's not an early rush, if it's an early rush, it leads with a bunch of crap units killing all your peasants. Um, if it's a generally it leads to at least some a large enough battle between units, usually in a couple of different places, and then a city getting burned. Um, occasionally somebody can come back from that, um, but at least you can watch your city burn and that's okay. Uh, but there's an endgame um, based on economic management, and that's I kind of like that. Well, before the show, I was sort of thinking of the other definition of endgame, where more the chess definition, right? Yeah. Where the the art of bringing a game to a successful close. Yes, exactly. Um, and RTS is, you know, I mean, very different from other strategy genres because, you, I mean, the RTS, you can really discuss that because they are so competitive. Yes. Um, and, I mean, right away you've got to draw a distinction between end games, which, as you say, can happen, you know, at any point, really. Right. Um, and then late games. Yes. And late games and end games are, in, are related. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, w- one thing that I, is absolutely crucial is to make sure that if, if, the, if the match goes the distance and it hits that late game, you want at all costs to avoid something that begins trending towards stalemate and really risk averse play. Yeah, so you to continue the, the the chess analogy. You want to find a way because that that has happened in RTSs. Well, I mean, total annihilation would be. I mean, the first game, I you know, there was a there was a time in RTSs where stalemates were actually quite common. Um, total annihilation, I guess, was the high point of that. But even some of the Age of Empires games, where one side would be out of resources, both sides would be exhausted, and neither one could finish the other one off. Right. Right, and an Age of Empires solution is you know to have the wonder victory. Right, but if you're out of resources, if you can build a wonder, you're not out of resources. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that 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 is an, now that's less of an issue uh, in RTSs now. I can't think of the last RTS where stalemate was actually a. Can you have stalemates really in StarCraft Two? I haven't played enough of it online to tell. No, 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 no. Um, although I. And this is this is one reason I wish uh, you know Chris Remo were here. I do remember that uh, he and Nick Brecken are in a two v two league, and a few months ago, I think they they tweeted that they had played a match that went, I think, an hour and a half. It was either like a thirty nine minute match or it was like an hour thirty nine. See, th- th- that's that's ridiculous. Right, but RTS. Right, but they they were like, this was the the most idiotic, insane match we've ever played. You know, here's a video, and I I need to watch it. But, um, but I think that that's very much the exception. Right. Um. So I think a lot of things have to go so wrong. So to go, for that to go to back to the late game end game thing was I want was if Chris was here and I know he listens to the show, so maybe he can comment. Was that an issue where one side or both sides did not have an end game in plan, uh, an end game strategy, or did the end game strategy just collapse uh, because of what was going on on the other side? Um, because you know, bringing a game to a successful and happy conclusion. Um, is what we're all about, ideally. And for Chris and Nick to get into a point where just they're dragging a game on to... I mean, even 39 minutes would be long for a 
uh, uh, StarCraft game, but not ridiculously long. An hour 39 would be just mad. Right. Although, I mean, you know, I, I will I will say this too, because I've done it in chess, and I've done it in RTSs. <laughs> I have done the... Um, I have done the delay to rage quit strategy on more than one occasion. Um, where, you know, if the, if, if the other guy, you know, has a lot of advantages, but not a really good grasp on how he wants to put this thing to bed. Yeah. Um, you know, I will go out of my way to make, you know, his attempt at victory, a living hell. Um, just, you're, you one, know, you're one of these guys who plays at Terrans and flies his base all over the place, right? No, I think once you once you hit that stage, you're pretty much screwed. Um, <laughs> is, is my experience. Like, you know, you start flying, they're going to be waiting for you by the time that base gets wherever it's going. No, it, it tends to be just more like harassment tactics. Like, you know, he's you know flying out to destroy your base, and then you sneak the same raiding squadron back into his base and destroy his harvesters. So his attack peters out, and he realizes, oh god, my I'm out of resources again. <coughs> and then we sort of reset the clock. Yeah. And you do that often enough, you know, it, it, it sends someone over the edge. But um, one of the things I, I really enjoy about uh, StarCraft, and, and Roos does this too, but, it, but it's in StarCraft it's more pronounced, mm-hmm. is, you know, and a, a, as has been quite rightly pointed out, I mean, we are, we are not StarCraft experts. I have not played it nearly enough, um, you know, to really talk that intelligently about the right. multiplayer. But um, I find that most StarCraft matches I play almost like have rounds, like, like a prize fight, you know? Where, mm-hmm. where it's like, I, you know, like the game falls into this rhythm... Where both guys sort of go for a quick decision in the first round, or maybe somebody decides, well, I, I want to set something up for the next round. So you have the the first sort of opening battles, the first skirmishes, right. um, to decide to sort of give the game its shape, um, and then you know if you know suddenly you meet unexpected success, then you go into the early game end game. You know, you, you start bringing up the follow up attacks. You start bringing like, you know production centers closer to their base if that doesn't work you go to the next round and one of the things i really enjoy about starcraft is it has this sort of this steady you know drumbeat of progress um as yeah. you go through the stages all, all the best rts's have those starcraft yeah. 2 though you know, I'm not, i mean i'm not a huge fan of it um it is a very good game and it does certainly have excellent pacing in the skirmish, um, and all the best RTSs have great pacing, and I think it is that that progress and um, they get good that sense that you are moving forward, and the stages are actually pretty clear. Um, and one of the ways to measure your skill is how quickly can you advance through the stages. Uh, they're not marked as ages in the Age of Empire games, um, but you know just when you can when you can do certain things, and the quicker more quickly you can do them, uh, the better the player you are, uh, <coughs> in general. Um, and StarCraft has those marked out very very nicely. It is uh, very when we say polished, we overuse the word polish, but yes. it is a polished game because the pacing is just so immaculate. Um. One thing that I, that I, I think Ruse is doing, um, I haven't. I was, I, was, I was just going to ask you about Ruse. You're way ahead of me. Go ahead. Um, well, I generally play in. I generally play in in the ranked, um, mat, in the ranked matches because that's where they match you by skill rather mm-hmm. than send you to die. Um, but 
so I haven't played this. I don't know if I don't know if this has come out yet, but it's a really cool idea. Um, is that if you look at Ruse, you you know that Ruse has like three tech eras, right? Like yeah. 1939 tech, 1942 tech, and 1945, something like that. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, it's it's kind of just labels for it for these for these tiers of units. But what they're really what they're really driving at is you just have to research your way to them, and you can research them in or, any order. So you can have like tiger tanks rolling out fairly early in the game if you want to dump all your resources into going for that. Um, which can which can lead to some sort of ridiculous, you know, clashes of really super high end units and makes, you know, lower level units kind of get underutilized. Like um no German player is going to be building a, a pack anti tank gun. Right, because you know what, what guys in multiplayer have discovered is that isn't very useful. But so the the innovation that either has come out or or is going to come out is the game is gated so that from when the match begins, you are stuck to 1939 era units for like the first 10 minutes, and then the next te- then it rolls over and you're in the next tech, and then it rolls over again, sort of again like ages and age of empires. Right, uh, but what what I really enjoy about this idea is because because your advantages can change so suddenly between eras that it it really it it, it really has the potential to make the game um, much more dynamic, um, and, and right. again sort of sort of change the end game because because then what you then what you're setting up is if you want to try to win this game in the early period, then you've got to know how to best play your faction in that period. Right, you know, because and then you have to, and then you have to be aware of if I don't get that done, things are going to be sort of overturned in the next, in you know, at the at this at this timestamp. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. You have, to, you have to make do with what you have for the next ten minutes. Um, but as but as far as like ruse end games in general, um. You know, I mean, it, it does run into. I, I will say, it, it definitely runs into the rush problem of a lot of RTSs. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I mean, worse than worse than StarCraft. Um, StarCraft, I, I, I've generally experienced like it's. It, it seems more about like balance and the use of your units. In Ruse, there there does seem to be a lot of rush tactics, mm-hmm. um, but it's still. But it's still very neat because I, I really enjoy each faction. I feel has different end games. It really it really needs to master, um, and and that's something I enjoy. Like it, it again gives it that structure, yeah, structure and variety, uh, which are always good. Um, I don't think I have anything left to add here. What do you say? Yeah, not really. All right. So that was our uh, show. Thank you for listening. Uh, episode uh, 95. Next week, we do not have a topic chosen. Uh, we have mapped out a nice long list of topics uh, for the next couple of months, surging forward into 2011, including uh, trying to think of what we can do for episode 100. It might just be an ordinary episode. It might be something special. I don't know. Maybe Someone not. will die. Someone. And then the ER music. <laughs> there we go. House will face his greatest crisis ever in episode 100. Uh, so uh, we move forward, uh, closing out this year. 
if you have any thoughts on end games uh, or ones you like, ones you don't like, insights into games we've talked about or did not talk about, Chris, if you have that video of that epic StarCraft game and you're listening, send me a link if Rob forgets uh, so I can get that up. I'd love to see it. I'm not searching through all your tweets to find it. Um, so, Rob, thanks for joining me. Uh, my pleasure as always. And have a good night, everyone. Good night.